there. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. My guest today is Raymond Corey, and he is a New York Times bestselling author whose novels have been translated into more than 40 languages. His book, The Last Templar, was adapted into a comic book and an NBC television miniseries. An acclaimed screenwriter and producer for both television and film, he has also penned several scripts for BBC series such as Spooks and Waking the Dead. So, Raymond, thanks uh, for being here today. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. Now, you've worked on both scripts and novels. What would you say are some of the storytelling principles, universal ones, that apply in both realms? Well, I'd st- I mean, I'd start with saying uh, the, the the driving factor of either one has to be a great story. It has to be a story that you can't yeah. you can't stop yourself from wanting to tell. Um, and that applies as much to an episodic TV series. I mean, I, I remember once working on one of the TV shows I was working on, and uh, I'd left the show uh, when I was doing the books, and the producers called me up a couple of years later, and they said, we have a problem with uh, with an episode. Um, can we come over and bring the writer, and, you know, can you read it and have a think and whatever? So, I, you know, they came to, to my office, and I read the script, and I asked the writer, I said, so in your in your mind, what is the... What is the main problem with your script? Sure. And, and he said, well, I think the basic problem is that there isn't a great story. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, believe, I couldn't believe this. It was like, hang on, you're a writer. You wrote this script. It's an episode of a TV series. And you submitted the script. You're proud enough and, and, and confident, confident enough to have written it and submitted it. And you... you you think there's no story in it? I mean, so uh, it was insane. It was insane. I, I, anyway, so you know, so obviously at the the, at the beginning of everything, we're, either way, it's storytelling. You know, we're in the yes. business of storytelling, and I think for a novel, for in my case, a novel is maybe a year and a half, two years of work. So unless I really believe in the story, and I, unless I think it's a story, I can't. I absolutely have to work on and write and research and think about, then I'm not going to be able to devote that much time to it. And it applies to, to scripts. It has to be a great story. Now, Raymond, when you're working on your novels, that's a huge time commitment. Do you know beforehand that this will be a project that will engage you for that long? Or do you tend to start a project and then say, this isn't, this isn't really what I wanted it to be? Um, so tend to make the choice early or after you've started the process to really dive into the story. I think with, with, uh, the way my books, the way it's happened with my books is that it all starts with a, with a theme. So it'll start with a, uh, something I'm interested in exploring a theme, a concept, uh, uh, an arena, some, something. So it's, it's not yet a story. It's something that interests me. And so I'll start, so I'll sense that there's a great story there, um, but there's a great theme behind the story because for me, it's not just, it's not, it's not just about giving, like writing a fun, uh, thriller. That's a page turner that, um, you know, that you can't put down, but at the, at the end of it, you go, okay, that was a, that was a cool, fun thrill ride. And now I'm going to move on to the next book. I want to have, I, I, you know, my aspiration is for the books to also deal with a theme, a subject matter where I can research 
I can search it a lot and I can give people hopefully something to think about after they finish the book and while they're reading the book. So, yeah, so the research process is kind of my, the time when I'm kind of thinking about, you know, is, is this, I'm already hooked by then, I'd say. You know, if I'm researching something, I know I'm going to write that book. Uh, there is a phase before that where there might be three or four competing themes uh, concepts, ideas where I'm debating like, hmm, which one am I most attracted to? But once I start researching something, uh, I've never not then written the book based on that. And now some of your books deal with religious and historic themes. And I'm curious, how do you go about weaving all those together? What are some of the keys to really weaving those themes together into these engaging and kind of almost epic stories? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's funny. I wrote a bio yesterday for, for a, a book, uh, a book, uh, the, the Paris, uh, Salon du Livre, the fe- book festival in, in France. And they asked for a short bio, um, related to, um, to comic books, to French comic books, to graphic novels. And it occurred to me, so while writing it, it made me think, um, that I started as a kid, I used to consume comic books, American comic books and French bande dessinée uh, like crazy. I mean, that was my main pastime, that and film and TV. So, um, so I think, you know, I grew up just uh, uh, going through so much um, fiction in terms of comics and film and TV that the storytelling instinct, if you like, maybe got rooted inside me at a very young age. So, Weaving, uh, you know, finding a theme like, you know, take the first book as the last Templar. I, I, I read about the Templars as a, as a, as a group, as a, on a, as a nonfiction, you know, I read a book about the Templars and instantly the story came to me, what the contemporary thriller story would be that would allow me. So it's the present day search for the lost secret of the Templars, which can be something physical. It can be gold treasure or whatever, or it can be something uh-huh. It can be something more esoteric, a knowledge, a secret has been hidden. So, you know, you've got the driver right there for the thriller. Um, and then it's a question of populating it, uh, the, uh, designing the characters that are going to be at polar opposites to, you know, in this case, I had a chart with four different characters and all four of them had, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, I'd say, you know, for me, honestly, it's a storytelling instinct. It's uh, the, the, the idea of how to, build a fast-paced, thrilling story around a concept, a world that interests me, has never been an issue. I think it's really interesting that you start with this premise, or as you say, a theme. A lot of people will start with a character, and in some cases, um, you know, a, a setting or something like that. So I like that approach. You start with this idea and then begin to populate it with, as you said, characters uh, from different perspectives or different ends of the spectrum. It's fascinating. How do your characters come to you? Is it Does it tend to grow out of the theme or do you have – I know that you've done uh, a couple of books in a series with The Last Templar. I believe the, um, yeah, with the Templar salvation. Uh, uh, in that case, you have some of the, uh, you know, characters already built in. But there were uh, the two the two Templar books were uh, were um, were the same characters, the same sure. name, 
um, the the two main leads, if you like, and some peripheral characters. And then I and then after that, I used those characters again in three other novels, but not in a context. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. But not in the context of Templars or or uh, uh, it was the Devil's Elixir, Rasputin's Shadow, and the Endgame. But initially, yeah, I mean, I don't write. I I don't write. I've had I've written eight novels. Um, they they weren't particularly. They weren't a series per se. You know, it's not like um, you know Harry Bosch books or uh, Cotton Malone books, whatever they are. They're standalones, and the reason for that is that they they did start they they did start off as themes, concepts, ideas that I wanted to explore. And then building that world, um, I, I tried to think of uh, new characters, original characters, who would be surprising for that story, but also who would bring a point of view or potentially a skill set or a, a background that might be useful or counterintuitive to the story. Um, and it was actually, I don't think, you know, uh, looking back, I would say it didn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't maybe the cleverest thing to do from a commercial point of view. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because readers love to read series. Readers love to read, uh, you know, they love to read a a Jack Reacher book every year or a Harry Bosch book every year. And, uh, and, you know, this notion of it's the same but different uh, is what gives readers great comfort. And they like, Mm -hmm. you know, hanging out with your characters once a year or, or maybe twice a year. And, um, and, you know, they know what they're getting. They know the world is going to be. Um, for me, I was, you know, maybe because I came to this world totally fresh and I had no expectations about this, this first book. I came to it as a screenwriter and I adapted a screenplay that I hadn't sold, you know, a few years earlier uh, into this first novel. So when it became a, you know, a global bestseller and I, suddenly I, I was, you know, I had uh, a chance to write a second novel that was, bought ahead of time, but it wasn't a story I'd come up with, I'd, I'd had for years sitting on the <laughs> um, The story that became my second novel, The Sanctuary, uh, could have easily been a sequel in the terms of, it could, be, it could easily have been the same characters as The Last Templar. It could have been Matt Riley, the FBI agent, and Tess Chaikin, the archaeologist. They would have fitted perfectly into this book. But in my mind, this was a book where I was going to deal with the concept of of, um, of longevity, of mm. why, you know, could we live longer? Uh, medically speaking, how could we live longer? And if we did, how would that change the world? What would that mean? So, and let's say there were something like a fountain of youth, if there were a product out there, a, a natural product that could allow you to live longer, how, how, you know, what would be, how would we deal with that? So suddenly to have, in my mind, you know, to have the same characters who lived through the last Templar, uh, potentially life-changing, world-changing ramifications to the story. And now a year later, they're suddenly going to be come across, you know, something that could let mankind live twice as long. Again, world-altering discovery. You know, in my mind, it was like, well, what are the odds of of uh, the same two characters stumbling? <laughs> you know, and I, I try for credit for for realism in my books. Like I take these potentially, you know, high concept ideas and I ground them in so much research and science that when you're reading the book, you feel this could really be happening. And I thought using the same characters again would remove a step of credibility. To oh, us. yeah. Yeah. And that's why I went with new characters and that, and that became something I did for the next two books as well. I like um, when you mentioned high concept. That's a phrase that had come to my mind as you were speaking. And usually the higher the concept, the tougher it is to build in believability. 
because we have these, you know, these huge ideas and how do you make them grounded in reality? And personally, I think believability is one of the keys to great stories, to great storytelling. And so I like how you do that. And it takes you quite a bit of research to accomplish that. Um, do you find that the research is something you do beforehand or does it, um, kind of go, uh, along with the writing kind of back and forth as the process progresses? There are two sides to it. The main side, the, 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 the bulk of the research, which has to do with the, the central theme or the central, you know, the high concept, um, needs to be done ahead of time because mm -hmm. I need to see, I need to learn to educate myself about the topic and to see if it's doable. Um, yeah. so that's the bulk. Of it. I'll give you my example. Uh, in my third novel, the sign, I wanted to, I was interested in exploring what would happen if, um, if a sign appeared to mankind um, that no one could explain, that scientifically we could not create today, um, but everyone could see it. Uh, it would go live. People all around the world would be watching it live, and, and a lot of people would be seeing it because it would appear in different places. Um, you know, what would be the ramifications to us as uh, in terms of, 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 of religion, in terms of what we believe in? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, because sure. it's either going to be if you can't explain it scientifically, it's either going to be God talking to us, or it's going to be aliens. And if and it's uh, <laughs> scientifically, so I was I wanted to, I needed to create something that was, but but it was man made. It's a, it's a conspiracy theory. Oh, it's a, uh, sure, sure. So I needed to come up with something that was mind blowing, where it would be believable that scientists around the world couldn't explain it, but at the same time. Scientifically, I had to be able to justify it. So I actually, so I did a ton of research, and I, and then I ended up contacting NASA. I decided to contact <laughs> it could be coming from, like it could be generated from space. So I got oh, wow. the you know, the head of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, at NASA, and I said, "Look, here's what I'm trying to do. Like, what is this? Could you? Can I speak to some scientists? Can I? Like, can we try and figure out how this is doable?" And ultimately, it turned out to be something that I found. I, I met a guy who's, uh, I mean, I, through my research, I found a guy who was uh, one of the preeminent nanotechnologists at the time. Ah. This, was, this was 10 years ago. And he devised a nanotechnology um, uh, uh, method for this that worked, but that was so, it was very outlandish, but it was, it was the, the, the state-of-the-art technology at the time and maybe ramped up, you know, five or 10 years sure. in advance. But it was... You could conceive it. That's brilliant. I love that. And um, I think that sometimes when I read novels, and I and it is rooted in science, it is rooted in you know stuff that's believable. I'll read it and say, okay, I buy it. I buy it, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, this, you know, and you're believing this extraordinary event, you know, like a Jurassic Park kind of a thing. Well, sure, they can make you know clones and certainly there's the dna or whatever the blood of the dinosaurs and oh you can make a park and then you start thinking probably someone's doing that someplace right now in the world so so i i think that's a sign of great uh you know great storytelling is it's a weaving together of all of those aspects now um a lot of our listeners are always interested in the journey that our guests took toward publication now i know before you started writing novels you did write screenplays what obstacles did you did you face 
did you have to overcome to become the novelist that you are today? Um, you know, uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be it's going to sound so conceited and pompous uh, of me to say, but I I really had zero expectations when I wrote this book. Uh-huh. So, but the the long boring backstory to this, which I'll try to to tell you as briefly as possible, is that. I wrote the screenplay to The Last Templar back in 95, 96. And at the time, I, was in, I didn't have any agents. I was just learning screenwriting. It was my third screenplay. And uh, it was very ambitious. And uh, through friends of friends of friends of friends of friends, it fell into the hands of a book agent, uh, very oh, powerful. Uh-huh. And uh, he called me up and he said, look, this is a terrific screenplay, but uh, I think it should be a book first because it's going to be hard to you know, it's a controversial subject matter it's big it's epic let me turn it into a novel and then you know if the novel's a hit then it'll help you it'll be easier to make the movie uh, i said well i'm just i know i've only written three scripts i'm not ready to write a book yet he said don't worry we'll get a ghostwriter so um he put together a deal uh showed it to one uh to the first well, the first publisher he showed it to in New York, one of the one of the big, uh, one of the major uh, publishers who published Tom Clancy at the time. Um, they made a massive advance for it, and uh, flew me to New York to sign a deal. There was a, another a ghostwriter was there to who would adapt my screenplay into a novel, and uh, and it was amazing. It was every writer's dream come true. You know, it was a massive advance. It was one hundred and fifty thousand hardcover first printing. It was it was insane. And, uh, but then in the meeting, the publisher said, you know, there's one thing I'd like to change in your book, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole thing about, uh, religion and it's, it's boring. No one's interested, uh, at the core of the book, let's turn this, let's make this uh, diamonds or gold or something, you know, physical, which for me took out the whole point of the book, uh, the whole, the whole subject matter, the whole heart of the debate, um, Anyway, ultimately, I I passed on the deal um, because I didn't see the interest in this book, and got a lot of really nasty phone calls from 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 people for having walked away, and uh, and I thought, you know, that's the end of my writing career. But a producer, um, a, a producer in the UK, heard the story, found the script, read the script, called me up, said, look this movie is too expensive for us to make, too controversial for us to make, but anything else you want to write, come see us. So I had another idea, you know, three months later or something that's commercial and non And I ended up, that kicked off my screenwriting career. So I sort of sold a lot of scripts, worked on TV shows, and all the time, this last Templar um, uh, thing was sitting on my laptop. Oh, yeah. And then five years later, maybe, I, I changed agencies and um, and a book agent at my new agents heard the whole backstory, read the script, called me up. She said, look, this should be a novel, but it has to have everything that the script has in it, all the religion, all the, the that is the book, and you should write it yourself. Mm. So, and I didn't believe in it, and I'd had a, I'm sparing you a lot of heartache along the way. I mean, this this project had a lot of a lot of pain, so I didn't really have an appetite for it. And she kept pestering me, "Come on, write it, write it, write it." So ultimately, I wrote it just to uh, to exorcise a ghost, you know, just to get it out sure. of my system. And uh, and I was writing a TV show at the time that was doing really well. So I didn't, you know, it wasn't really, "Oh, I'm going to become an novelist." It was like, I just want to get this thing out out of my system, and. Uh, and then even when we, when I finished it, 
Um, well, halfway through writing it, the Da Vinci Codes came out. And oh, I, read it okay. I read it immediately. I loved it. And I thought, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm, I'm dead because that book, <laughs> it deals with all, you know, a lot of the themes I'm dealing with. It's about, you know, the origins of Christianity and, you know, uh, what do we really know about faith versus history and stuff like that. And, um, and I called my agent and I said, you know what, this book is the, this, this project is the curse of my life. You know, I'm just going to burn the, the, delete the file, you know, and I'm done with it. She said, no, 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 your book's different. Please keep going, keep going. By the time I finished it, everybody refused it. The publishers all rejected it, even though they loved the book. They said, we already have our Da Vinci kind of, not clones, but, you know, books that follow that, that hunger that people had after Da Vinci for historical religious thrillers. That we don't have room for this book. You know, we already got the, you know this thing coming out next month. This other thing. So I was like, I'm dead again. So, uh, so I self-published it in the and it went to number three on Amazon out of all books. I'm not talking about religious thrillers. I'm talking about fiction and non-fiction books. It went to number three based on word of mouth and on on, on user reviews. So then the publishers came back and said, okay, actually we like this book. <laughs> and I said, okay, the price may be a little bit different now. And then they released it and it went, you know, all around the world. And so it was, that was the journey, you know, it was, it was a very long, painful journey, although it's my first book and it was a, you know, it became a global bestseller. That, that book, I started off, it started its life as a screenplay 10 years earlier and it had a lot of pain along the way. Pain and perseverance. I mean, you stuck with it. And one of the things I liked about what you were saying just now is uh, you actually walked away from what many people would say was their dream because you really believed in your story as you had as you had told it. And uh, that takes a lot of courage and gumption. And uh, I, my hat goes off to you for that. Well, you know, I mean, thank you. Uh, friends say that. I, I always respond that, you know, I was, I was in my early 30s at the time. I don't know if it was uh, courage or, 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 or uh, conviction or just, you know, naive, uh, youthful stupidity. <laughs> it was like, take the money. And, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I was, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't, I, I just, I couldn't see the interest in this book. I couldn't see, I thought it would be a subpar kind of national treasure, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I like the natural treasure movies. I mean, it's going to be like a, a cheap version of them. So I don't know. It's just, it just seemed like, and I'd written this book when my wife was pregnant with our first child. I was brought oh, up. Wow. I was brought up as a Catholic. I'd, I'd left my job three years earlier, so I had no money in the bank. I felt blasphemous while researching it and writing it. And, you know, it, took, it was a very personal thing. So suddenly I'm thinking, you know, all this effort and it's going to turn into a treasure hunt for, for a diamond. I mean, come on. Mm. Now, uh, your newest novel that just, that just came out here in the States is Empire of Lies. And I'm really intrigued by the story. It's an alternative history thriller, kind of in the tradition of the man in the high castle. Now, I've never interviewed someone who's written an alternative history novel before. I mean, I'm intrigued by this. Tell me a little bit about um, what led you to write this story and um, the research that you had to do in order to pull this off. Um, well, what led me to write it was uh, this huge geopolitical um, uh, problem, issue, uh, uh, conflict we have at the moment um, with uh, as, as a conflict between uh, Islamic states 
Islamic countries, if you like, um, uh, of various degrees of of, uh, of, uh, of theocracies, if you like, and the Western world per se. And I come from Lebanon, so I come from a country where, you know, I've we've been we've been the country's been ripped apart for for decades due to religious conflict. It's 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 an oversimplification to say this. You know, it's it's a conflict of of people of what I call, you know, I would describe as mafiosos, people of different religions who are in power, who are ripping off the country, and they've divided things up, and they use religion to motivate people to, to, uh, to, to, to motivate people's tribal instincts. And, you know, this tribal instinct thing is growing all around the world. I mean, populism is growing, polarization is everywhere. You know, the U.S. is split, you know, into two very polarized groups. Europe with Brexit, England was split. You know, every country you look at today is being split into this these polarized um, uh, points of view uh, that are that are very hard to see how they're going to coexist and how this is not going to get worse. So, in terms of Europe, um, uh, certainly the the uh, the refugee crisis um, awakened this whole um, conflict idea with oh my god, you know, Europe's going to turn. You know, we got we have this wave of Muslim immigrants and you know Europe's turning Muslim. I mean, you know, huge exaggerations. But but at its core, there is an issue with. With uh, civilizations that want to live a certain way, and other civilizations that want to live a different way, and and uh, and there's a critical difference between their beliefs and how you know what the the, the way of life that they think uh, is acceptable. So, uh, so I I was interested in seeing if there's a compatibility between uh, a country like Saudi Arabia. Like, how would you bring Saudi Arabia? How would you bring Iran? Um, you know, if you had a you had a, a change of government, you know, would it be possible for these countries to suddenly uh, embrace a Western way of life and, uh, and for the people there to, to want to live that way? Um, so anyway, so that was like the, the big idea in my mind is like how to deal with this. And, um, and this notion of Europe um, under Muslim rule. Uh, which is the, the the great exaggeration that you know politicians use and that uh, uh, you know lights people up, uh, ignites their, their 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 fears and their paranoia. I thought, what did this really happen? And there was a time in history when the Ottoman Empire had been around for five centuries, and uh, well, maybe not then. At then, it had been about two and a half centuries. But where it was really, it was a superpower uh, of the planet. It ruled from from the deserts of Saudi Arabia, North Africa, all that, and, and a lot of the big chunk of Europe. And they almost took Vienna twice, for the second time was in summer of 1683. And I thought, what would have happened if they had taken, it's one of the big what-ifs in history, mm. if the Ottomans had taken Vienna, could they have conceivably carried on and taken all of Western Europe? And that's 300 years ago, 350 years ago almost. What would have happened to the world since? So that was my kind of alternate history idea is present day Paris, but it's an Ottoman Paris. So the, the great cathedrals have been turned into mosques like the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul was turned into mm. a great mosque there. And what would life be like with all our technology, with internet, with, with, with our airplanes and subways and, and all that, but under Islamic rule all across Europe, how would the world be different? And, um, and of course, that's the world. But then there's where's the thriller? So, <laughs> so, so the research was huge in a sense because first of all, I had to educate myself about the Ottoman Empire, everything about the Ottoman Empire. But then I had to stop in 1683 because after 1683, 
the evolution of the Ottoman Empire, which finally collapsed at the end of World War I, that evolution of the Ottoman Empire, even though it was around until 1920, I couldn't use any of that because that Ottoman Empire was actually very much influenced by what was happening in Western Europe. They were trying to catch up with Europe. So they were trying to, they tried changing uh, their, their legal systems. They tried all types of reforms in order to catch up with Europe that was galloping ahead with the Enlightenment, with the Industrial Revolution, with the printing press, with all that stuff. So none of that would apply in my world because in my world, the Ottoman Empire was the big boy. They took over Europe. So they would be setting the example. So besides researching how the empire, how the Ottoman Empire was until 1683, I then had to research everything that happened in the West from that point onwards and see how, which part of it the Ottomans would have done, which parts they would have ignored, which, what might have happened. No French Revolution, no Russian Revolution, no World War I, no World War II, no Holocaust, no Vietnam, none of that. So that research was uh, not just research, it was a lot of imagination, a lot of, sure. uh, you know, using your mind to, to try and think about how this world would have evolved. So it was super fun. Well, it sounds fascinating, and it does sound like a huge task as far as the imagination part. Now, you mentioned a minute ago just about the thriller aspect of it. Tell us a little bit of how this book, which was conceived a very high-concept idea, um, how does the thriller part kind of fit into this story? So the so the the the, the initial notion was kind of a nice um, thought exercise, if you like. But then beyond that, uh, I needed more to, to compel me to write a story. And uh, and I thought about you know for me it was the equivalent of of the Soviet Union before the collapse of the wall. So you're living in a in an oppressive. Uh, totalitarian uh, state uh, with, a, with, a, with heavy secret police, with surveillance, with, and it occurred to me then, and so, you know, so it was, for me, it was a story of, the story that, that came to mind was the story of a secret policeman um, who's part of that oppressive system, who gradually starts to realize that actually maybe he's on the wrong side of history on this, maybe, mm. maybe Maybe he's uh, an enforcer for the bad guys because of something that happens, a tragedy that happens, a murder that, that, that he feels is, you know, he's told it's one thing, but he starts to discover, no, hang on, this is something different. Um, and starts to doubt his, 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 uh, this, you know, the, his beliefs and the side he's fighting for. Um, so that was, you know, where I was conceptually. And, um, and then I thought, you know what, this, this actually doesn't, it's not so much, it doesn't have to so much reflect that mindset, it's, it's a mindset that's very much still around today. I mean, we live in a world where surveillance is, is omnipresent way more than it was um, under the KGB in the USSR. Uh, you know, if you have an Alexa at home or if you have, I mean, arguably, you know, our conversation right now is going for <laughs> some kind of filter and some kind of keywords uh, may or may not be picked up. I mean, you know, your paranoia can take you all kinds of places with that. So, you know, we do live in a hyper-controlled, hyper-surveilled world, and we do have all kinds of nefarious influences um, intervening in all kinds of ways into our lives. So it became, to me, to be a, a really interesting mirror to our world today, but seen through the prism of, a, of, a, of an Ottoman 
society in Paris. So it became the story of the secret policeman in Paris um, who's, who's going to do the right thing and potentially even overturn the whole system. And then out of the blue, this idea came to my mind because originally it was just going to be an alternate reality as in the Ottomans won, took Vienna and carried on. That's just a fluke of history. But then one day I had this idea of what if, what if this happened because someone went back from our time and made it happen? What if someone mm. from our world was really pissed off at the West and decided that his <laughs> revenge on the West was going to go back to 1683, help the Ottomans take Vienna, help them conquer Europe, and live like a king for the rest of his life. And that just became like a turbo charger to the story. And, <laughs> and I thought, who is that guy going to be? Who is the guy who's going to be most pissed off at the West to want to do that? And um, it, maybe it's not, I mean, it wasn't a very hard uh, choice to make. I made him an ISIS guy. An ISIS guy who's not, a, who's not an uneducated kind of mindless barbarian, but someone from Saddam's ex-military intelligence guy, very highly educated, uh, knows history, um, not you know a secular, not an Islamist per se, just uh, just and really pissed off about what happened in Iraq, gets thrown in prison there, which is how ISIS was born in those in those prison camps in in Iraq. So all his journey, I took the journey of, I, I you know, I, I, I looked up two or three of the of the leaders. Where I kind of used their backstory as as the genesis of this character, and uh, he's the guy. He's our he's our main bad guy. You know, I was recently in United Arab Emirates, and um, I was at a book fair called the Sharjah Book Fair, which is the third largest book fair in the world. I was doing some speaking there. I was there. I was there as a guest this, four years ago. Yeah. Oh, four years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was uh, one of the guests this year, and um, I remember that I was speaking with someone, and I mentioned one of the thrillers I'd written, and it had a terrorist, and he kind of looked at me really suspiciously, said, "What religion was he?" <laughs> he was very concerned that that the thriller that I wasn't like stereotyping any specific group. Uh, is that anything you've run into with this, uh, with this book or with your research and your writing that people are, uh, I don't know, hesitant because of the way that you portray certain religious groups? No, not at all, actually, because I've been, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite like, I used to write this show here called, I was one of the writers on a show here called Spooks, which is kind of like a uh, 24. Uh, sure. And it's, and it's uh, and you know we had we had I mean the the, the bad guys per se uh, it's, it's I mean it's an MI six uh, MI five sorry espionage show um, you know the bad guys were French Chinese Israeli sure. American uh, Arab uh, uh, all kinds you know and uh, and so it was you know we were uh, we were very careful to uh, to not stereotype anyone. Sure. Um, in my books, uh, I never have, you know, for me, black and white never exists. So mm -hmm. in this book, you know, if you read Ayman Rashid's story, um, you will not like him because he, you know, he's, he is ready to behead the director of the Museum of Antiquities in Palmyra because the guy won't tell him where he's buried the treasures. But uh, you understand where he came from in... Um, in the Templar Salvation, 
the guy who goes into the Vatican and ends up, uh, you know, he's responsible for a lot of deaths. Um, his backstory, he's from, he's Irani, Iranian, and his backstory is that his, his parents and his sister were on the Iran air flight that was shot down by uh, an American missile from a cruise ship, um, from, a, from a missile ship uh, in the Gulf, you know, between the UAE and, and Iran in the, um, when was it, in the 80s? Um, and so, and, you know, that in itself might, might not be enough to, to, you know, to make someone behave the way he does. But when he then sees that no one apologizes for this, when he sees that President Bush Sr. actually awards medals to the guys who pressed that button, and this was a civilian, it was a mistake, but no one ever said sorry, and people got got medals for, you know. Mm. So you can understand that guy saying, well, you know what, I'm pissed off. You know, my family died, and what the hell? So, you know, backstory is so, it's like, it's probably, it's, it's probably the most interesting um, part of creating the, the antagonists in the books uh, because there's so much to mine. There's so much tragedy and anger uh, in the world that one can mine to push someone to a level where what they're doing is not excusable, but you can start to understand where they're coming from. I think that's fascinating that backstory plays such an active role in your stories, especially with the the motives of the antagonists or the bad guys. Um, Now, when readers read your books, you mentioned not necessarily seeing things through black and white, um, exploring, you know, moral dilemmas as you write it. Um, I think that's one of the things that that elevates stories, as you were mentioning earlier, not just that it's a throwaway story, it's a thriller, okay, we read it, we forget it, but it's something that makes people think and maybe affects them even after they've finished the story. Yes, absolutely. It's so important. I mean, it's now, so... I yeah, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to follow up and say that, uh, you know, writing is a, is such a solitary experience, and sometimes we're left alone with our thoughts. And as you were exploring the antagonists, I was curious if that had ever um, affected you, like kind of climbing into your mind. I know one of the books that I wrote, the the antagonist, the bad guy, was so heartless that it actually it was difficult for me to to keep writing the story because it was very dark. Does that ever happen to you as you explore sort of these moral dilemmas and moral quandaries, especially with uh, some of the antagonists? Um, Honestly, no, uh, because, I mean, I haven't been to dark places, maybe like, um, you know, Heath Ledger did when he was portraying the Batman, Mm -hmm. uh, the the Joker on on, the Batman movie. Um, I think for me, the, the, these characters, I, I kind of know, uh, I know where they're coming from because their backstories are, are things that I know, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm up to date on, on political, uh, events, uh, especially related to the Middle East or European politics and stuff. So, um, there are things that I've been aware of for a long time. Um, and, uh, it's just kind of, sometimes it's just like delving into the, 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 the more gruesome details of what might've happened to these people. Mm. Um, that might be, yeah, I mean, it, it can be disturbing. Uh, uh, and then, you know, you push back from, you know, you, you try to 
decide how much you actually want to put into the book because you don't want to uh, to make it that. Uh, you know, the question is, how dark do you want to make it for the reader? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's more. You know, it's more the there, there's so much to to vent to, to to be angry about in the way the world is is operating at the moment on so many levels that um, that it's more it's more a broad reaction than than a, than a reaction to specific uh, specific incidents. I was reading uh, recently that Tolkien was um, had written an essay. I think it was called on fairy stories where he basically said someone had criticized his book and said, Oh, that's just escapism reading fantasy. It's just escape. And he made the comment. He was like, well, why wouldn't we want to escape when our, if someone's in prison, they would think of escape. And so that there are so many things, as you mentioned here, you know, our world is polarized. There is darkness in our world. And sometimes we do need an escape and, so I feel like there's nothing really wrong with writing stories that ask big questions that help us to escape, but also entertain us. I feel like sometimes it's just what we need. Absolutely. And also they, they can also give us hope uh, because, there you, you know, go. yeah, you know, ultimately the, the character who we're rooting for, you know, more, more, more times than not will prevail. Uh, I mean, I, I, I went and listened to, um, to Lee Child, uh, Give a talk the other day, and uh, he was he was talking about that. He was saying, "Look, our world, you know, we your car gets broken into, uh, your house gets uh, gets gets vandalized, robbed. You know, the, the odds are they're not going to catch the guys. They're, you're not you're not going to get a good outcome to that story. You know, uh, uh, a friend of yours gets gets mugged or or you know worse, and, and that. So in the books." Reacher will, in his books, Reacher will prevail. The bad guys will get their comeuppance and will have the satisfaction of living vicariously in a world where good triumphs. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's, 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 there's certainly a side to that. When I hate, I personally get really let down when, when you have, you know, when I say, if I sit through a movie or 10 episodes of a TV series or something and the ending is, is down and, uh, mm. or ended. And it's like, yes, that's realism. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not watching it for realism. I'm watching it <laughs> to feel, you know, to feel satisfied at the end of it. To go, yes, yes, you know, he 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 managed to cut through the, you know, all the forces against him and prevail. Yeah, no, I love that. That's true. We do want hope, and I think stories that bring us hope, and that allow us to see a you know, a clearer vision of the human condition. Those are the stories that really, that last and that really affect us, I think, in, a, in the deepest ways. Now, a lot of people who listen to the show write themselves. And I think it's fascinating that you self-published your book and also you've been published by some of the major publishers in the world. Um, do you have any advice for someone who is writing a story and is trying to trying to think about what the next step in publication might be for him or for her. Um, I mean, my recent experience has been that uh, the, the, the publishing world has changed a lot over. I mean, I've been, I guess I've been doing it for uh, 14 years now since my first, since my first book came out. Um, and I've seen a big change in those years. I'd say um, it's much harder now to 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 get published by a 
you know, a mainstream publisher, if you like. And at the same time, there's so much noise out there. There's yeah. so much noise. Uh, and the, the way to promote and advertise books is so fragmented now. It's almost like you feel you have to almost sell each book individually to, to each reader. Um, you know, back when I started, my publishers would take out ads in the New York Times, USA Today, you know, the LA Times, Miami Herald, like four or five newspapers, uh, maybe a couple of banner ads on, you know, some major sites. And that was kind of it, you know, that was the advertising. That, and that reached a ton of people. Um, then it kind of morphed into um, into the online, you know, the, the blogs, the uh, the online interviews, the, the and it became more and more and more fragmented. So rather than do, rather than put an ad in the New York Times, you needed to do maybe 20, 30 uh, interviews with book blogs to get the same coverage. Um, and uh, so what I'm saying is it's become much harder. And sorry, at the same time, you've got Netflix and, you know, all the news sure. that have launched this year. Uh, you've got so much. You've got Instagram on your phone. You've got, you know, Facebook on your phone. You've got, there's so much distraction that it's very hard to grab a potential reader's attention and say, this is something you might enjoy. Um, so uh, my, my, disappointing answer to this is that I think it's much harder today. Um, conversely, it's much, it's, it's very possible today to put one's own stuff out there through, you know, to sell publish on Amazon to do things like that, which, which I mean, personally, I think, uh, you know, I dread to think what the numbers will be like in five years time in terms of eBooks versus physical. Um, for you know, for anything beyond the main, the, the huge selling titles that you see everywhere, you know, you'll see the yeah. same fifteen books wherever you go. You go to, the, to through an airport, you go to a, a bookstore, you're going to see those same fifteen books stacked up. The rest is the rest is is obliterated. Um, so it's just really tough. I think it's I think authors need to create an online presence themselves. Uh, they need to engage with their readers in terms of not just writing, but it's become like 50% of the time is writing. The other 50% is producing content to attract your readers to, mm -hmm. to, to you and to say, Oh, you know, this guy sounds interesting. He sounds like a, like he has something, you know, I, I like his, the, the way he thinks or his, his, his language, his voice and, uh, his story sounds fun. Maybe I should give this a try. Uh, but it's tough. It's very tough out there. And the numbers are down for everybody. Uh, the book sales are down for all, all, you know, whether it's the top names or the, so it's, uh, it's a, it's, it's a tougher time. Weirdly enough, it should, you'd think it would be the opposite because it's so, you know, it's so easy to bring stuff out. Uh, but it's, it's made it much harder, I think. Well, as you mentioned, there is a lot of static out there. There are so many other distractions and possibilities with the movies and Netflix and, and so on, as you said. But I like that this sort of brings us back to the very first thing that you were talking about, and that is that it all the key to all of your work has been trying to tell a great story, whether it's in film or in print. And uh, so I think that's a great way to cycle back to this idea that no matter how we get published, 
it's it has to be about excellence and great stories and understanding that we're we're really striving for that. You know, I th- I've heard that there are more than three thousand self published books that come out per day. Wow! And and you're trying to write a book every year or two, you know, to compete with three thousand per day. And so, you know, it, it really boils down to this idea of yes, have a presence and yes, market, and also tell meaningful stories that will really reach readers. So I, I really appreciate your time and um, Raymond and also, you know, thanks to everyone for listening. We want, we want people to check out your book empire of lies and your other books. Is this the best one to start with right now? If they haven't read any of your other books or would you suggest starting at the beginning? Um, there's no, there's no order to them apart from the, the, the three that came out before this one. So yeah, I'd say Empire of Lies. I mean, I, I'd say go on, maybe if, 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 uh, if potential readers have the patience, go on my website and just read the, the, the little blurb about, or on Amazon or wherever, uh, the little blurb sure. about what the book's about and see which, which topic, which subject matter kind of appeals to the most, um, I think uh, I think the Devil's Elixir is a lot of fun because it's the first one I wrote in the first person, and it doesn't have a big historic backstory. It's, it's a, but it has a big concept um, uh, in it. Uh, it's which is re- reincarnation. Um, I think the first one obviously is the one that struck a nerve all around the world, the Last Templar. Um, if you're a fan of, I guess, the Da Vinci Code, obviously, then that would appeal. And then the new one is, like I said, it's such it's a very big. It's 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 a big concept book. It's uh, it's time travel and alternate history. Uh, you know, it's a big epic. So if someone's in the has the appetite for that, then you know, by all means, uh, excellent. And if anyone, and uh, I'd also say to readers, if if they do uh, pick up a book and read it and, and like it or not, um, I'd love to hear from them on my Facebook page. To uh, you know, I I love interacting with my readers a lot and. Uh, you know, I do answer every one person, you know, uh, uh, all comments and stuff. So, and I love hearing back. Excellent. Yeah. And that's what I was going to follow up with. Is the best place then to reach you through Facebook or are you also in other social realms or is it a website? Any, any place that you would want people to connect with you online besides yeah, Facebook? Connect with me is, is on Facebook and it's author Raymond Curry. All right. Excellent. Well, everyone, we thank you for listening. Please check out our other broadcasts and podcasts on thestoryblender.com. For more information about my stories and my books, you can go to stephenjames.net. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.